0: Glad you're here. So potluck next week, write it down, put it in your calendar. Excited for the potluck next week, next Thursday. All right, let's pray and we will jump into the scriptures this morning. Father God, we uh, ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. I just thank you for all these great people and um, God, we just pray that as we look at the scriptures together that we could uh, really feel your presence here with us, that we would be um, excited about the uh, message that you have for us, God, that we would be ready to apply these words to our lives and to think through uh, where these things can impact us in our day-to-day world, God, and uh, more than anything, we just ask you would be glorified through our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, all right, all right. So, we are in 1 Samuel 7, continuing our slow walk through a very big book of the Old Testament. Um, And so last week we saw the uh, Ark of the Covenant return back to Israel. And then today we're going to see where Samuel, the character Samuel, the prophet, is back in the story. He really becomes, once again, kind of the protagonist of what we've been looking at. Because for about three chapters now, he has been absent. He has been completely off the stage, and some people think that the function of those three chapters, in part, is to show how, how messed up and how chaotic Israel was without Samuel at the helm, without a prophet to lead them, without a judge who was in charge. And so now, if that's true, in First Samuel 7, we're going to see how he restores stability um, politically politically because of a spiritual revival that takes place in the nation of Israel when they uh, receive the ark back to them. So we're in 1 Samuel 7, um, so just start on the front page of your notes there. And the first thing we're going to see is a description of uh, spiritual, religious revival in the nation of Israel in verses 2 to 6. So we're starting at uh, chapter 7, verse 2. It says, From that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fastened on that fasted on that day and said, "There we have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So again, a description of a religious revival in Israel. First sentence there, first verse, uh, verse two is. From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years. So remember, after the ark had caused all these problems for the Philistines, then it was returned to Israel. Remember, they used the test of putting it on the cart and having the two uh, cows that had just given birth and then sending them off in the other direction. And it ends up going all the way to Bet-Shemesh. And when the cart comes into town, the people of Bet-Shemesh are all excited. Then they peek inside and 70 people are struck dead because of their their curiosity, but really because of their irreverence before God, that they were going to let the curiosity get the better of them and look inside the ark. And so then the people of Beth Shemesh call down to their neighbors in Kiriath-Jerim, and they say, hey, we've got the ark of God, and we want you to have it. How awesome is that? And so they send it to them. They hear about what happened, and so they put it in one guy's house. Remember, they give it to this guy, Abinadab, who's part of the priestly line, and they say, keep the ark in your house. And so this is saying, now 20 years pass While the ark, instead of being in the tabernacle, instead of being in the temple, instead of being this center of worship, is just kind of sequestered away secretly, and not really secretly because people knew, but it was put away inside someone's home. And so this 20-year period happens there. And what happens um, in the text that we're looking at today, and actually for the next few chapters, all happens during the span of that 20 years while it's in Abinadab's house. And so it's in Kiriath-Jerim. And uh, and sometimes the Hebrew figure 20 years can refer just to half a generation, which really, um, you know, if you think... At that time, they would figure a generation of people around 40 years, and so 20 years really is kind of half a generation. So whether it is literally exactly 20 years or just kind of around 20 years, it doesn't really matter. It's just to tell us that it's about that time. Um, And the events of the text from here until David brings the ark to Jerusalem all take place while the ark is in the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. Then it says, all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. The house of Israel lamented after the Lord, after Yahweh. And the word lamented here, which in Hebrew, it's a very Hebrew sounding word, it's nahach. The, the Hebrew word lamented is used only at uh, two other places in the Old Testament. In one place, it means to wail, so the people wailed. Um, and in another place, it actually means to taunt, so to taunt someone else. And so the word here, nahach, It basically means sort of this intense and bitter grieving before God. So Israel's grieving because of the reduced status of the Ark in their religion. So remember, the Ark is stolen, and it's this big crisis for the people of Israel because it's central to who they are. Then it comes back, and it's this great moment of rejoicing. And then they kind of have the mixed feelings because the Ark is back, but look at all the problems it's causing. And then they have to hide it away because they don't understand it. They don't know what to do with it. And so that leads to this spiritual crisis, this spiritual wandering and homelessness for the people of Israel they have the ark but they don't know what to do with it so they put it away in a house and that leads to sort of this lamenting this grieving this uh this upset spiritual homelessness uh, that they feel in um in the nation where uh, God has put them and so it's probably also intensified by this lack of security in the homeland so remember that they have this big war against the Philistines going on and so far You know, apart from the ark being sent back to them, the Israelites are losing this war and losing it pretty catastrophically, right? So, we've seen some the battle at Aphek, we saw an enormous loss of life for, for the people of Israel and the armies of Israel. And so, they're losing the war, they don't know what to do with the ark, they really are just in this really difficult time. And it's in that context that when Samuel calls for repentance the people are ready to respond and to turn to Yahweh. And that's what it says. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only. So this is the first place in 1 Samuel where we see plainly that the Israelites were not only pagan thinkers like we saw last week, but they actually were idol worshipers at this time. Because that's what he talks about when he says put away the foreign gods and the ashtaroth. We'll talk more in detail about who was Ashtarith, um in, in a moment. But what he's talking about is, uh, is that you need to turn from this idol worship and serve only Yahweh. And this call, the call to put away idols, return to Yahweh, is very common in Scripture up to this point in 1 Samuel. Um, in fact, stand, you could say Samuel stands in kind of this storied tradition of the prophets of Israel. Here's a few examples. So in Genesis 35-2, this is Jacob calling uh, to his household to repentance. It says, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and so uh, Jacob the one who is called Israel who is the patriarch of the whole nation is the really the first person we have in the scriptures who actually has this direct prophetic call to turn from idol worship and turn to Yahweh uh, in Deuteronomy twelve three, here's Moses saying, "...you shall tear down their altars," referring to the idols, the false gods, "...and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim," so that's in reference to another uh, idol, "...with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place." And then another one, uh, Joshua, who's the successor of uh, Moses as the prophet of Israel, says, Now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And so you see that the, the call of Samuel when he says, if you're really returning to Yahweh with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only. He echoes this continual call that happens throughout the history of Israel that as they stray... And as they look at the religions that surround them of the different peoples that they're living among, and they try to adopt those practices, and maybe they don't feel like Yahweh hears them, so they turn to Baal or they turn to Asherah or Ashtoreth, and they start to follow these other gods, thinking maybe that will, that will work, because it seems to be working for the Philistines and the Ammonites and all the other ones around them, that God continually rise, uh, raises up these prophets to say, turn from them, turn back to Yahweh, and then you'll experience the." Beth- Things that you're looking for, and so again, idol worship is is continually the thing that seduces God's people away from Him. And, and there's really interesting passage in Isaiah 44 that really kind of lampoons this uh, this idol worship, uh, the, this proclivity toward idol, idol worship that the people in Israel had. And so this is kind of small text, but um, I'm just going to read it. And it's, the, the individual you know, words are not that important. It's just a really interesting kind of narrative that he's putting there. So he says, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man he takes part of it and warms himself he kindles a fire and he breaks he bakes bread also he makes a god and worships it He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into his god, or into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I have burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And so basically this story is there to say, look at the absurdity of worshiping an idol. He's saying, Isaiah is saying, think about it this way. You do all this work, you know, you build, you grow this tree and it's watered and it grows and then you chop it down and then you take careful measurements and you saw it and you carve it and you turn it into a god. Then you take the rest of the wood that you use to make your god and you burn it in the fire and you cook your food with it and you warm yourself up with it and then you turn around and you go to the rest of it and you fall down and worship it and pray to it and ask it to deliver you and protect you. So he's saying, look, this thing that you made with your hands is going to be the thing that you serve and the thing that you worship. And for us, there is an absurdity to it, right? For us, it's easy to look at that and say, well, that's just, you know, kind of this foolish, you know, primitive attitude of going to worship these created things. But what Paul tells us in Romans is that we do the exact same thing. And that we always will. That human beings are always substituting things that we make with our own hands for the place of God in our lives. We've just gotten more sophisticated at it, right? We don't worship uh, little carved statues that we've created, for the most part. We worship things that, uh, that we make with our own hands, or the things that we earn, like money and the things that money buy. We worship things like the families that we raise, and we worship things like the jobs that we, that we find ourselves in. And so all of those things take the place of God in our lives, and they represent idols to us. And so idolatry is really one way of thinking about just the central attitude of sin. That it's taking God and substituting, instead of God in our lives, some other created thing. Even if it's a good thing. Even if it's uh, in some ways a worthy and praiseworthy thing. It's not something that's worthy of the ultimate place in our lives. And so we'll come back again to idol worship as we go through this passage and especially to the specific idols that they're worshiping. But just notice the absurdity here and also that it's really a central thing in the story of Israel. They're being called back from worshiping idols. And so part of, um, part of Samuel's call to repentance is that if you do all of this, then God will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So if you turn from your idols and turn to Yahweh, then he will deliver you. And remember how the Israelites thought back in chapter 4. They thought, if we have this ark and we send it into battle, essentially if we take Yahweh's dwelling place and we bring him into battle, then he will make us win the battle. He will fight for us. He will strike down the Philistines because he's there, because we have him, because we're manipulating him and putting him in the place that we want to. Essentially what Samuel is telling them is the exact mirror image of that. He's saying... You will not be victorious so long as you think you can direct God to your own ends. The only way that you're going to be victorious is if you turn only to God, lay yourself before him as his servant, and then he will protect you. Then he will save you. Um, And so Samuel's call is the exact opposite. If they want to be saved from the Philistines, they need to serve Yahweh and him alone. So... And this is really actually a very important statement here. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. And so they actually make good on what Samuel calls them to do. They've reached the breaking point in their experience where they can see their neediness before God. They're ready for repentance. They're ready for returning to Yahweh, and they do it. Ray, you had a hand up? Yeah. Yeah, um, well, put o- so put away in the Hebrew does just mean put away. Um, we don't really know if, did they burn them up in the fire? Did they smash them into pieces? Um, what we do know is that they did stop worshiping them. Maybe they put them in the closet and said, you know, I'll see you later, you know, <laughs> so I don't know. But, um, I mean, we, we do see that later on the Israelites do return to this idol worship and, you know, intermixing with these other things. It doesn't take that long, actually. So maybe they did. Yeah, maybe they put it away with the Christmas decorations and put them in a labeled Rubbermaid and said, you know, bale, you know, and put it up <laughs> in the attic. I don't know. I don't know. All right. So it does say that they put them away, and it actually gives us the identity of two of the gods in this statement here. We already saw Ashtaroth, and now we see the Baals as well. These are the two most common idols that the people of Israel turn from Yahweh to serve. Baal and Ashtoreth, which is the singular of Ashtaroth, so it's, that's just how Hebrew is. Um, and actually the plural of Baal is actually Baalim, not Baals. For, so for some reason, they anglicized that one, and they didn't call them the Ashtariths, though they called them the Ashtaroth. So anyway, you've got Baal and Ashtarith. You may have heard of Asherah, who is actually another one, um, actually different from Ashtarith. Imagine how confusing that would be, um, Ashtarith and Ash, Asherah. Um, and so, the, But these two, Baal and Ashtarith, are the chief god and goddess of the Canaanite religion. Here's some photographs for you. And that is the song of Baal and Asherah there. <laughs> The festal dance to yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you very much. All right. So I uh, these were about the uh, the most uh, church friendly depictions that I could find. Um, so this is Baal over here. This is Baal, and so this is really an example of what those little household gods or idols would look like. These little figurines. This one happens to be made out of stone, so it was probably owned by a more um, wealthy worshiper uh, because most of them were made out of wood. And then over here, you have several depictions of, um, of Ashtoreth. And, uh, and again, these are fertility gods. So all the the main gods of the, the Canaanite religion are fertility gods. It's a fertility cult, and that refers to human fertility as well as fertility for crops and and, uh, and, you know, fertile ground and that kind of thing. And so it was all one in the minds of, of the Canaanite religion. And so the, when you think about it that way, you can understand why certain aspects of Ashtoreth are going to be, um, Large. yeah, emphasized, I would say, in, in depictions of Ashtoreth, which is why it was so difficult to find a family-friendly depiction of her. Um, and so it can be a little bit shocking, but there you go. Um, so also... Um, Interesting things to keep in mind here, archaeological digs in, in Israel have found an overwhelming amount of small household statues just like these, depicting these deities. And also they found larger shrines in some of the city centers and even, get this, even in places where worship of Yahweh would have taken place. So a lot of, a lot of times archaeologists will find these things and they'll say, aha, it's proof that the, the early Jews, you know, the, the proto-Israelites were pagans. And they'll say, so there you go, the Bible is false. And you say, well, you clearly you have not read the Bible because the Bible tells us that the early Jews and all the Jews, you know, as long as there have been Jews, have been idol worshippers, And continually they're being called back to Yahweh. And so these, these finds for some people who don't know the Bible very well, they would go, oh my gosh, What's going on here? And, and in reality, what they should say is, oh, there's confirmation that the, the history of the Jewish people is a, a continuing apostasy before Yahweh. So anyway, Baal was the god of fertility, and he was the god of the storm, and he was believed to be the son of uh, your favorite, um, your favorite uh, Canaanite god, Dagon, the god of grain. So you remember Dagon from a few weeks ago? He was the one that was found with his hands cut off and his head you know, cut off in the temple when the ark of God was brought in next to him. So Baal, this guy right here, is Dagon's uh, son. And uh, he was the chief god of the Canaanite religion, the Canaanite pantheon. Uh, Ashtarith is a goddess of love and fertility, and Asherah is a different one, and she's the mother goddess and typically the companion of Baal. And so Ashtoreth and Asherah throughout the history of, uh, of the Canaanite religion always were s- being swapped out as who was the supreme goddess of the, the uh, pantheon. So it's just kind of interesting. Different periods of history, you'll see that Asherah is being brought up, and then it's Ashtoreth in different places. And then in the New Testament, Jesus refers to Astarta, which is just a different, uh, It's a different pronunciation of Ashtoreth. So there's a continuity. These same gods have been around for a long time. Another one is Ishtar, which is also from Asherah or Ashtoreth. And then the, the word where we get Easter is from Ishtar. So there you go. Does that mean we shouldn't use the word Easter? No, of course not. You know, we should definitely use the word Easter because it's weird if you refer to it as something different that people don't understand. It's just recognizing that oftentimes these pagan things, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's a certain continuity that carries it through. Um, But it's okay that, you know, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter and some of those things flow downstream from pagan practices. It doesn't mean to celebrate Easter is to worship Ashtoreth because... I mean, obviously, that's not what's going on there. Um, we're worshiping Jesus when we celebrate Easter. Yeah. Teresa? Mm-hmm. And the God of the storm. So you can see the, see the connection there that, you know, rain comes down, it waters the land, it makes the crops grow. So he's the fertility God. He's also the God of the storm. And really, you can say he's the fertility God. But again, in the Canaanite religion, they're all fertility gods. That's what the whole thing is about. So it's interesting. So is Baal? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So it's just plural. So Baal is the god, but then when they make individual gods, they call them Baals. Just like the Asherif is, or ash Ashtarith becomes Ashtaroth, the plural, because there's multiple of them. And that was really the way that they saw it, by the way. So when you make an idol, it's not just a, a representation of Baal, it actually is Baal himself. And so there's all these individual gods, and you put it in your house and actually has this spiritual power. It actually is his real presence there in the home. So pretty dark and creepy stuff going on there. Yeah, chilly. He's the son of, of Dagon, Dagon, yeah. Yep. Which is interesting, right? Notice that uh, the Philistines have a different religion, a different pantheon than the rest of the Canaanites, because they come from a different place, so they're a little bit later, and yet there's a certain continuity between the religion of all of these surrounding tribes, where Dagon, the, god of the chief god of the Philistines, is the, is the father of Baal, the chief god of all the other Canaanites, What's different about the Israelites is that they don't, their religion isn't just part of the religion of all the people around them. It's totally different. But you can start to see why they want to bring together all these things because all the tribes around them have a continuity in the gods that they're worshiping. So why should Yahweh be different? Well, because he is different, because he's the true God. And because as Paul again reveals to us much later, all these other gods are either nothing at all or they're actually demons being worshiped that are meant to distract people from from the true God. So, uh, again, all the the chief chief gods of the Canaanite religion are connected to fertility, and that leads to the common practice of cult prostitution, even, again, at the altars dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. And so it's pretty uh, dark and pretty disgusting stuff that's going on um, that is sometimes done in the name of Yahweh or in the name of... um, of, uh, you know, this kind of this syncretized religion, bringing these things together. And remember the sons of Eli, right? So they were mentioned as sleeping with women at the tabernacle. And it doesn't necessarily say this, but when we bring together now this revelation in chapter 7 that the the Israelites at this time were syncretizing and were bringing pagan aspects into worship of the true God, it's possible that that's a reference to, again, cult prostitution. That the sons of Eli, Hophni and and Phinehas, are actually worshiping Yahweh, or they're worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth at the tabernacle using this kind of uh, cult prostitution, this fertility cult, bringing that into the worship of the true God. And so we don't know for sure, but it seems it may point to them not only being sexually immoral, but also being idol worshipers. And as priests of Yahweh, actually encouraging people to move away from Yahweh and toward these false gods as well. Okay, so in that context then, Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. And so he's now fulfilled the role of the prophet. Uh, Samuel is fulfilling the role of the prophet, calling God's people to repentance. But then now he's going to function also as a priest. He's going to gather the people together, he's going to pray to Yahweh on their behalf. In a moment we're going to see he's going to offer sacrifices. and that's the kind of the priest's role in the Old Testament. He stands before men on behalf of God, and he stands before God on behalf of men. And so standing before men on behalf of God, he communicates God's will, He leads them in worship, He administers the word of God, the Torah to them, and then standing before God on behalf of people, he offers Sacrifices to God for the propitiation for the atonement of their sins. He also um, stands before God and prays to God on their behalf. And so you see that Samuel is fulfilling multiple roles here. He's blurring the lines. He's the one person that God has raised up to fill a lot of different roles in a time when when his people are pretty spiritually bankrupt. And so he gathers, it says, all Israel at Mitzpah. And all Israel may refer to, like, literally all Israel, like all the people of Israel coming together at Mitzpah, a national gathering. Um, Or it could possibly refer to just a gathering of the elders from each tribe. And so we've seen some precedent for this, that the elders of Israel were together at the Battle of Aphek, and they were the ones making the decisions. And so either way, though, it's a pretty big gathering of people. And archaeologically, we know that Mitzpah at that time was one of the biggest centers of Canaanite idol worship in Israel. So Samuel's choice of this location is not a mistake at all. He wants Yahweh's people to rededicate themselves to Yahweh at the site of their greatest apostasy at that time. So he's saying, if you really mean it, then we're going to go to this place that you've chosen to make the place where you're going to worship Baal and you're going to worship Ashtoreth, and that's the exact same place where you're going to rededicate yourselves to Yahweh. You're going to put away these idols, and we're going to set a change in the history of God's people right here and right now. So it says, they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. So here we have a pretty commonplace practice of contrition, fasting, to show show your sorrow and to show your repentance, and then one that's very uncommon. In fact, I can't think of another place in Scripture where this is done, where they pour out water but in, you know, as a ceremonial showing of their repentance before God. It's pretty interesting. And it may be that Samuel is marking this momentous occasion with a unique and symbolic act, that he's going to do something that has never been done before, as if to say, this is how important this is, that I want you to remember that this was the place where we poured out that water, maybe to, to you know, symbolize sort of this pouring out of ourselves before Yahweh. Um, and in a moment, we're going to see how he memorializes things even further. Yeah, Ray. Yeah, it definitely has that uh symbolism at some points in, in scripture and it's you know a pretty um common symbolism in a lot of cultures because of its necessity for life. And so it's it's possible. We just don't really have a lot of detail in the text. Yeah. And then finally, the statement that kind of caps off this section of the text is Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. So it doesn't mean that... You know, they lined up and he, you know, gave them a judgment call on whether they were good or bad or whatever it is. The judgment of Samuel is actually that he stands in this line of those charismatic military leaders in the period of the judges. And truly, Samuel is the last judge. He's the final judge of the people of Israel. And remember, they're more generals, uh, like military generals, than they are experts in the law. Although, as we're going to see with Samuel later on here, he kind of does fill that, that role as an expert in the law, but that's more in his function as a priest than it is as a prophet, or than it is as a judge. Um, but in these uh, few verses here already, we see Samuel function in the roles of prophet. He calls the people to repentance as priest, standing before God on behalf of people, and as judge as he prepares them for battle, because that's what's about to come next. Any questions on this first section here? it spend a little you know, longer kind of laying the groundwork for some of this, then we're going to, you know, go, we're going to go through the other stuff at a little bit of a quicker clip here. But any questions before we move on? All right. All right. So, now we're going to see the uh, action turn up a little bit here in verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. So, you see that uh, ultimately, you know, right away, Yahweh orchestrates where he's going to prove his protection of his people on the basis of their repentance and their return to him. He orchestrates this moment where he can demonstrate that. It says, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So again, whether this is a true national gathering of everybody in Israel or it's just a gathering of their elders, it still makes for a pretty strategic target for the warring army. If they hear, okay, either all the people are going to be in one city or the most important people, the leaders of the people are going to be in one city, they're going to want to advance and and fight against them and do what they can to defeat them. And so they do. And it says when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the Israelites here had every reason in the world to be afraid of the Philistines because of the recent history between them, apart from some Brief success. In fact, under Samson the Judge, way back in the book of Judges, the long history between the Philistines and the Israelites has been mostly a story of the Philistines' success and the Israelites' defeat before them. Um, I mean, think about even what's happened recently here. The Philistines routed Israel at Aphek, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. And the only way that it came back was not because of the Israelites' success in battle against them. It was because of this really kind of absurd way that God orchestrated to show so that everyone could see there was only him who brought the ark back in the first place that actually had nothing to do with the Israelites. And then when they got the ark back, you know, you remember what happened there. And so it really it makes sense that when they hear the Philistines are coming, the first thought they're going to have is, oh, no. They're not going to say, oh, we can take them. Oh, it's going to be okay, but actually not again. They're coming at to us again. What could they possibly want now? Haven't they done enough? That kind of thinking is what's going on there. And so, yeah, yeah, they've been, uh, yeah, d- very much so uh, harmed by the, uh, the attacks that have happened against them. So the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So this time, something different happens. Unlike the other times before, the Israelites now turn to Yahweh for help, first and foremost. Um, And they turn to Samuel as his chosen vessel. And so this is a departure from kind of the MO up to this point. So far, in the book of Samuel, when God's people are in trouble, they have not turned to him they've turned to this sort of pagan idea of, okay, go get the ark, bring the ark in. That's not really turning to Yahweh, that's turning to religion. That's turning to superstition, in fact. This time, they hear what's happening, they're afraid, and they go to Samuel and say, please, cry out to Yahweh, pray to Yahweh on our behalf that he will protect us and that he will save us. Um, And so Samuel does that. It says, Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. So this is a succinct statement of Samuel's relationship to Israel and his relationship to Yahweh. He cries out to Yahweh on behalf of, for Israel. And so as fits his priestly role, he speaks as a representative of God's people to God. So he's just got done standing before God's people on behalf of God, telling them repent, pour out the water, fast, you know, do all these things, express your repentance and contrition. And then after, right after that, he goes and turns to God on behalf of the people and cries out to God, protect these people. They're turning towards you. Keep them safe. Don't let them, uh, be, don't let them be put to shame. All of these kind of ideas are what's happening there. And then this powerful statement that Yahweh answers him he hears Samuel's cry in accordance with Israel's acts of repentance and contrition and their acts that show his pleasure with them. And so, then as Samuel is offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. So, Samuel then not only prays to God, but actually acts in really the quintessential role as priest and offers that burnt offering before God. So he would have taken a bowl and he would have slaughtered it and burnt it on the altar and expressed all these prayers to God. So really he is acting as the high priest and the prophet and the judge in Israel. He's the guy. He's the one person that God has raised up to lead is the people of Israel in this very pivotal moment in their history. Um, and notice here, too, that the enemy, the Philistines, are taking advantage of Israel's religious observance as the moment to attack. So when they're praying, they, you know, come and pray on Israel. Uh, There's a long tradition, by the way, of Israel's enemies taking advantage of Jewish piety, right? So we saw, um, you know, there's several biblical attacks on religious observers in the moments where they're most vulnerable because of their religious observance. The Greek and Roman armies on a few occasions invaded Israel on the Sabbath because they knew that they couldn't fight back Um, And then the modern invasion that happened um, not too long ago by an alliance of Arab countries on Yom Kippur, which resulted in the Yom Kippur War. So it's a long and storied tradition that we're going to take advantage of the Jewish people's religion in order to, you know, get them in the moments when they're most vulnerable. And this is really no different what happens right here. But Yahweh comes through, and so notice the difference in this battle. Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the, Israel, or against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. So God sends a thunderstorm here to frighten the Philistine army, and it gives Israel an opportunity to gain the upper hand in battle. And the text literally says here, it actually literally doesn't say Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound. It says Yahweh spoke with a loud voice. But the way that they've interpreted it here, the gloss thundered with a mighty sound, it's supposed to be consonant with kind of the Old Testament depiction of Yahweh who speaks in thunder. right? And also what's going on here, remember that Baal is not only the god of fertility, but he's the god of the storm. He's the God of the thunderstorm. And so for for the Philistines, for the Canaanites, and also for the Israelites who have been worshiping as Canaanites for a long time, when they hear thunder, the first thought that comes into their mind is Baal. But in this moment they know, oh no, Yahweh is actually God of the storm. Yahweh is actually the true God, and he is more powerful than Baal. And he's going to protect us in this battle in a way that our other gods never could. And so uh, it's a pretty interesting um, and a really deeply biblical thing, when Yahweh demonstrates how he takes on these false gods head-to-head in the very things that they claim to have power over. In fact, all the ten plagues in, uh, in, I- in Egypt, as God is, um, you know, liberating his people from Pharaoh, all ten of those plagues correspond to the gods of the Egyptian pantheon and the things that they were responsible for. So you ever read that that text and wonder, you know, why frogs, right? Why, uh, why blood? Why livestock? All of those things would have been understood by the Egyptians and the Israelites as Yahweh is demonstrating his true power over and against these false gods that claim to have power in Egypt. And so Yahweh, when we talk about him as a jealous God, this is really, in a sense, what we mean, is that he is very keen to show the weakness of our false gods and to demonstrate his true power over and against them. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So now that God has won the battle in, through you know, his voice from heaven, they are now able to gain the upper hand and push them back into their land. Here's the thing: we don't really know where uh Beth Carr is, <laughs> but we know that at this point um so a lot of a lot of uh scholars you know believe that it's probably somewhere in this area here below the sorek river um and so this is the previous boundary kind of here. And so essentially what's happening is that it's probably being that they're at least pushed back below this river. And so the area that's gained back for the Israelites is a pretty good little chunk of land there between these two streams here. And so essentially the important thing to notice is that the tide finally turns here in the war against the Philistines. And it only happens because of Yahweh. And it only happens when it, the Israelites reestablish a right relationship with God and put away the idol worship that they've been given to. Any questions on that section? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a, that's a good question because we don't really know. So last. Last we saw Samuel, he was um, a child or a young man, you know, even there, there's kind of some ambiguity about how old he is, and the next thing that we're going to hear about him is that he's an old man, and so at some point, all his life happens, and we don't hear about most of it, right, (laughs) and so, um, so ultimately, we don't know, although... I think that part of why uh, Chapter Seven is in here is to give us an idea of what Samuel was engaged in for most of his life and ministry as a as a prophet and as a judge in Israel. Uh, because the thing that's going to happen next, and really the the purpose of this book ultimately, is to show uh, not a lot about Samuel, but about the kings that he kind of. as he becomes the king maker and becomes the one who chooses, uh, or Yahweh chooses them, but becomes the vehicle that he uses to select his rulers for Israel. So ultimately we don't know how old he is. Yeah. Chris.
1: Just to be sure, when when sure, when sure, just rely the Lord mm-hmm. for His help. Just He is a help.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you when you, when you rely on, but just help, God
0: is a help. And our mm-hmm. our hero. Amen. Yeah, and that's exactly what this passage shows: is that. Um, that false gods are no help. And yet when we call on the true God, he is our help, and he does come to our aid. Any other questions on this section before we press on here? All right. So this next section, if I've titled, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, because this is where that line in everybody's favorite hymn comes from. So, (laughs) pretty exciting. So you can go home and say, I learned that today. So... Here we go. Yeah, I know where it is. So now next time you're singing, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, you can think about slaughtering the Philistines, and it can enhance your worship all the more. So here we go, verses 12 to 14. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzbah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now Yahweh has helped us. So there it is. That's where the line comes from. Till now Yahweh has helped us. Hither by thy help I've come. Which is a little bit more of a poetic way to say it. But Samuel was a simple man. So there you go. Till now God has helped us. Yahweh has helped us. So Samuel and a apparently others, take a boulder, right, Uh, probably not just Samuel, like, carrying it on his back, like Atlas or whatever, but probably a whole bunch of people carry this boulder and put it in this field in between these two cities, and they make it a memorial. He names the boulder in in Hebrew, Eben Ha'etzer, which is Ebenezer in its anglicized form, which is also the name of everyone's favorite Christmas character, Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, which some people, because of that name, have speculated. Is he an anti-Semitic figure? Who knows? Um, but <laughs> there you go. Because he does hate Christmas, and he does have a Jewish name. And he was written by Dickens, who also has kind of a, a you know, chancy history with that. Um, so there you go. There's a little side note. Um, <laughs> so back to the text. Um, Ebenezer here means stone of help. Eben is uh, stone. Ha- it's air means the help. And so it's really the stone of the help, but it's stone of help. Um, and, uh, and essentially, he's putting it there with this dedication that carries the explanation for the name that he gave it. Till now, Yahweh has helped us. This is our stone of help that commemorates help. Yeah, H-E-L-P, help. Um, and so it's a, it's, this is a stone that commemorates God's help, the fact that he helped us, exactly what you just talked about, Chris, that God is our help. That's what this stone means. It's a memorial to the help that God gave them in this battle against their enemies, in rescuing them from the hand of the Philistines. And so notice kind of the progression of the story up to this point. And you can kind of recognize why Ebenezer matters to the people of Israel. Israel has mixed worship of Yahweh with idol worship. Israel thinks they can manipulate Yahweh and, and then they suffer the consequences, which is the loss of the ark and a tremendous loss of life. The ark finds its way back to Israel But they show in the same breath that they haven't learned their lesson and they bear the consequences for it. Samuel then calls Israel to repentance and they answer him. The Philistines invade again. The Israelites this time turn to Yahweh and then Yahweh makes them victorious over their enemies. And so this is why Samuel sets up Ebenezer to be a reminder to God's people of what God has taught them in the hopes that they won't forget the lesson. Spoiler alert, they will forget the lesson or they'll remember it and they'll just go back the same way anyway. But this is what Samuel's hope is, that by setting up this big boulder that everyone can look at and recognize that's the stone of help. Yahweh has helped us thus far. They can remember what he's done and it can be a bulwark in almost a literal sense against the apostasy that seems to be Israel's favorite sin. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. So this is the turning point in the war against the Philistines. Things will not only get better from this point, there will be losses in the future, as we will see under Saul, King Saul, but they're never going to be quite as bad as they were before the battle of Ebenezer. And it says Yahweh's hand was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So for Yahweh's hand to be against the Philistines is actually kind of this image of him having it outstretched, like ready to strike. You know, when it talks about I've stretched my arm out against you, it's kind of like I'm about to hit you. You know, it's like a, you know, right cross coming right at him. And so his arm is extended against them. He's ready to strike them. He's keeping them down. For the sake of God, of his people so that they can flourish and so that they can benefit um, in the absence of this strife. Um, his hand is against them. And this means uh, that he keeps them in their place as long as Samuel was ruling Israel as judge. And as we're going to see in the text, that bears out to be true. That it's only after Samuel's gone that you start to see that the Philistines start to gain their um, the territory back It says, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So this shows further how decisive the Israelite victory was. They pushed them back beyond even the leading cities of the Philistines. So these cities in here, Ekron and Gath that are mentioned, um, those were never Israelite cities. And so it's a little bit of a weird reference here to say, that they they uh, take the uh, cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, and then to mention these two, because those never belonged to Israel. And so what's being said here is that again, where the territory, the line before, kind of runs kind of like that. So you can see that dotted line there. Um, now they've been pushed back much further, and. You know, So he mentions Ekron and Gath. So you might even think that the border is all the way down here. And then he says even beyond it. So in some places, it's possible that the Israelites had pushed them even beyond that line. And so they've gained back a lot of territory here. And so it just is there to underscore just how decisive of a victory this battle was at Yahweh's uh, hand. And, so, and then it mentions there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And as you're reading this, you say, who? Who are the Amorites? We haven't heard about them so far. So the Amorites or the Hebrew word Amuru is actually just this catch-all term. It refers to all the non-Israelite people who lived in the land among the Israelites. So we're talking about, you know, the Jebusites and the Moabites and the Perizzites and all the ites that existed in the Bible that are living among God's people. Amorites just kind of refers to all of them. And so, What's being said here is not only that there's peace in the sense that they're at peace with their invading armies, uh, the Philistines especially, but also the foreigners that were living among them, they sort of had this um, non-aggression pact. And that's kind of what it says here. So the term there, peace between, there's peace also between Israel and the Amorites. That phrase, peace between, in the Hebrew, is Only ever used in the Bible, and it's only used a couple times, but it's only ever used to refer to a formal peace agreement between two powers. And so it almost suggests that there was sort of this official peace between God's people and then the foreign people living among them. And we're going to see how that plays out and how that's really important as God's preparing this, uh, He's preparing history for the rise of his kings, of King Saul and King David. In fact, King David is going to buy the land for the temple from one of these Amorites, from one of the foreigners living among them. And so it's only under sort of these conditions that God can do the work that he's going to do in the United Kingdom as we come to that stage in the history of his people. All right, we've got one more section here as we dip into eight, uh, chapter 8. Any questions on this part before we move on? Yes? No. <laughs> no, we don't really know exactly where it is. Um, so it mentions that it's between, um, what is it, where Where does it say it is? It says between Mitzpah, which on this map is Mitzpec, I don't know why, and Shen. And Shen, we don't know where that is. That's a city that I don't, Yes, actually, I would have to check on it, but I don't think it's really mentioned anywhere else. And that happens sometimes in the Bible. It's, there's a place named like Bethcar. Nobody knows where that is. In fact, it means "house of the ram," so which sounds like a bar to me. But um, you know, but we don't know where that is. And it actually might not be referring to a city. It might be referring to some kind of landmark. And so who knows? You know, it's, it's not there. But what you can say is that, so these, these big stones that have inscriptions on them, they're called stelae or like a stela. Um, and so it's a, this big rock that has an inscription on it. It was a common thing. And so you find those all over the place. Like, I mean, it, it, okay, maybe I made it sound a little more ubiquitous. <laughs> it's not like you're, you know, walking around and you're like, oh, hey, there's a stone and there's... An... But, but archaeological digs have found those all over. As they're digging down, they find, oh, there's here's this monument that talks about, and there was this great battle and we put up the stone to commemorate the victory over the, you know, this tribe or this people or whatever. And so there's a lot of those all over the place. So it is kind of a common thing. But this particular one, Ebenezer, we don't know, yeah, Maybe we'll find it someday. That would be pretty cool. But but no, we don't know. <laughs> Other questions? All right. So a little last section here. And this is I think kind of the most interesting part of this text. And we're gonna dip into uh chapter eight. Uh because most you know, most commentators see the at the end of chapter 7, really a decisive break. But I think that there's the few, first few verses of chapter 8, I think are meant to sort of tell us something about Samuel that is in continuity with um, the the end of chapter 7 here. So let's look at those together. Uh, verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzbah, And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would... Uh, Returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. (laughs) They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So... Of course, yeah. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This is where... Oh, Bob, you have a question? Now, Sorry. I understand where Samuel's role is what he's doing as a priest or a prophet. Uh-huh. But what is he judging? Is he judging land disputes? And yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll get there. But it basically is he's a... As judge, you're just kind of a... A military leader, but you're also a civil leader, and you also decide disputes between people. So, yeah. Um, So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. That statement is in there partially to tell us what Samuel doing his whole entire life, because we get story about him when he's a child. The real, you know, meat of the book of 1 Samuel is about Samuel as an old man, Um, and so what's going on throughout his life. This is Partially what this tells us is that he has this itinerant ministry. He's a judge all the days of his life. It's kind of an epilogue, and it's a snapshot of his minis- prophetic ministry and his judgeship. Um, and it says he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzbah. And so here we see kind of the substance of his ministry. He's a circuit rider, and he travels between three towns each year. And these three cities are relatively close to each other. Here they are. So Gilgal, Bethel, and Mitzbah. So it c- kind of is like this little triangular formation. And actually, what we're going to see in the next verse is that one of the cities is also Rama, which is right around here. So it's kind of a, you know, diamond shape. So there's Rama. And uh, and this is his territory, that he's traveling around every year. He goes to all these cities. He makes it a circuit, and he uh, lives in these different cities for different parts of the year, and he acts as judge. Denny? He? So he no. No. Exactly, yeah. And I think there might be something to that. And, and we'll see even on the map how drastic that is. Um, so this is his territory. He's riding around, you know, every year. He's, um, you know, spending most of his time on the road. At le- You know, three-quarters of his life at least is spent in these other places. And then just to give you some context here, this is kind of the whole nation of Israel. And his little section is... Like right there. See that little green circle that I just put on there? That's that's Samuel the judge's territory. <laughs> that's the whole nation. And, and again, it, just a couple chapters ago, we saw that the nation of Israel is, is described as from Dan to Beersheba. So it is really this whole thing. And the territory that Samuel's covering is infinitesimally small. It's just a little tiny section Of this whole big nation and it's really this is not a huge chunk of land in real life either right like when we were in Israel we were in Jerusalem and we were flying out of Tel Aviv which is right here it didn't exist at that time so it's not there actually it's right here next to Joppa and uh and it took us uh 30 minutes to drive from from Jerusalem to Joppa I was like, we're going to miss our flight if we don't get on the road soon. And our guide's like, you don't realize how close together everything is here. It's a small country. And just look at this tiny little section that, that Samuel is, is operating his entire life in. Um, just to give you some, some context here. It, yeah. Well, and it just goes to underscore how even under a good leader, the period of the judges is kind of marked by these regional territories, and how there's no unification of the whole nation. That's why, as they come to a king, that's why the people start to recognize we need a king. Because people up in Dan have nothing to do with people down in Beersheba. You know, there's this whole big nation, and our, our judge is only in this tiny little section of it. And so it's pretty interesting, um, laying the groundwork for the importance of the monarchy. It says uh, Samuel judged Israel in all these places, and the role of the judge most of all is just to ensure peace. And so he operates as a you know, the decider of civil disputes. He also would have led the army. And then also we know that Samuel's serving as priest and as prophet. And so those are roles that are typically different from the role of judge, but uh, Samuel in these places probably bringing those together as well. In fact, in uh, in a moment we're going to see that he actually mentions a pretty specific uh, role of being the the priest and so then it says he would return to Ramah for his home was there and there also he judged Israel so he actually had those four posts and the final was his own hometown and Ramah is very close again to those same little itinerant cities that he was going back and forth but it also says that he built there in Ramah an altar to Yahweh so again he's not only this political, civil leader, he's also the religious leader, and he's leading God's people in worship. And remember, this is prior to the construction of the temple, and it's even prior to the relocation of the tabernacle from that guy's house to Jerusalem by David, which is going to happen a lot later. And so it's not, you know, in disobedience that he builds an altar in his hometown. It's actually just that he's leading God's people in worship in the only way that they can worship, because not everybody's going to go down to Abinadab's house to worship God. Um, and so they, God's people needed somewhere to worship, and so they built, major, they built altars in all of their major cities, and Samuel builds one in his hometown, Ramah, which is not a major city even at this point. It's a very small uh, place. And it, then it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So again, not really unusual. Um, also, though, and interestingly, it does follow in Eli's footsteps. So Samuel is raised by a corrupt leader, who is judge and his priest, Eli. And Eli's sons were also wicked priests, wicked sons, who turned after gain and took bribes and extorted God's people and slept with the, you know, the attendants at the tabernacle. And now Samuel's sons are going to follow in those same footsteps. It says the f- name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they were s- judges in Beersheba. And so again, look at this. Down here is Beersheba in this um, green circle down here. And so Samuel's area is up here, and he is half the nation away from the place where he sets his sons up as local judges. He sends them both to the same place, and he sends them to the southernmost city of Israel, about as far away as he could get from them. Um, not only a failure of parenting, but a failure of leadership, ultimately, because he's sequestering them away, he's quarantining them off. Maybe that's what it's indicating. Um, either he's trying to protect his own position as judge, or maybe he's just trying to quarantine their negative influence, because, as the text says there, his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain, they took bribes, and they perverted justice. So Samuel who's raised by a corrupt priest and a judge who sired corrupt and wicked sons is now raising for himself sons that fit the same mold. It's interesting that Samuel, who is a categorical success in the scriptures as a prophet and a priest and a judge, is really a failure as a father, that he raises wicked children. And this is easy to understand when you recognize the substance of what Samuel was doing with his life remember he's spending each year split between four different cities and so for the most he's at home a quarter of the year with his wife and his two sons who grow up to be these wicked people the theme of the dynamic leader who fails his family is one that we're going to see over and over again in the books of Samuel that we've already seen it with Eli Now we're seeing it with Samuel, we're going to see it with Saul, we're going to see it with David, we're going to see it with Solomon. It is so common. It's actually one of the main themes of this book, and one of the commentaries I've been reading, it's the subtitle. It says, The Darker Side of Samuel, Saul, and David, Narrative Artistry and the Depiction of Flawed Leadership. That Flawed leadership is one of the major themes in these books, that as great of a leader as someone may be, they're never going to be perfect, and it ultimately points us forward to the coming leader, the coming king, the coming judge and priest and prophet who will be perfect and who will raise up his people, his children to be like him in Jesus Christ. So a hand back here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why I want to bring the, that's why I wanted to bring these verses in chapter 8 into this one because I think it gives us a little bit more biographical information about Samuel, right? Yeah, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah, he he didn't need to appoint his sons as judges because there's nothing that says that the judge the line of the judge needs to be a hereditary line it's not like kings right things i think of right i mean i i think it it does that's exciting And it's a good point, though, that it's not necessarily proof positive of a, of a bad upbringing that people, because ultimately people make their own decisions, you know. Well, look, look drunk, right? well, exactly. You out okay. it, well, there's a great point. There's a great point. <laughs> no, she is. She's over there. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point, Jim. Excellent. All right. Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Well, we're hearing reports about them now. So if you know, if he didn't, then yeah. Uh, whoever's farthest from you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seems to be true with Samuel, too. He sent them both to the same place. They were both his favorite. All right. Yeah. All right, let's look at some uh, some theological stuff in this... uh passage so uh, external contrition must flow from inward repentance so notice that the people of Israel performed the ceremonial rites of contrition and smashing their idols or maybe just putting them away putting them in the closet um, pouring out the water fasting verbally confessing and then they acted in a way that confirmed true repentance so it wasn't just a ceremonial thing that they did and then when the Philistines came they're like go get the ark let's try it over again. It's actually that they had learned their lesson. They demonstrated by turning to Yahweh when the trouble came. So there's an interesting uh, verse in Matthew 3, 8. Um, Jesus says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, Different translations could be bear fruit worthy of repentance or prove your repentance by the fruit it bears. And so it's kind of this idea that repentance doesn't just subsist in rites of confession or contrition, and actually that the going through the motion of, you know, praying God I'm sorry or of, you know, doing whatever kind of, you know, ritualistic type of confession, those kind of things don't actually have anything to do with repentance if they don't correspond to an inward change of heart. And that's what we see here. They're meaningless without true heart change that then corresponds to true life change. And so Repentance is truly an act that's done inwardly, and yet those outward things that we do are meant to be something that reminds us of it, that makes it real for us, that's kind of setting in time and in space a moment where we recognize the movement from one thing to another. Um, What's that? Yeah, a stone, an Ebenezer. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Hebrew word for repentance is pretty interesting. Is The Hebrew word means to return back, so it means to go back to where you came from, essentially. The Greek word, and this is probably one that you've heard talked about more in like sermons, is like to literally about face, so like to turn from going one direction and go the opposite direction. But I think when you take those two things together, you get exactly the essence of what uh, repentance is meant to be that we're turning back toward God and, it's, and it is turning exactly doing a 180 from the thing that we are facing. Um, so think about it this way. We've turned away from God in sin, so we must turn back to God in repentance. And so one way to think about, this is really the story of Scripture, is that we were created to have a relationship with God where we we were facing him and he was facing us, right? It's sort of this perfect relationship with him in sin and rebellion we turn away from God which then causes God to have to turn away from us so when we turn away from God it creates that that sin in the relationship that then a holy God can't continue to be in that presence so he turns away from us in Jesus, who dies on the cross and rises from the grave, he, God now turns back to us in forgiving our sins, so that then, what is the message that that uh, Paul gives us, that Paul tells us is our ministry of reconciliation? He says, we implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, turn back to him. And so that's the essence of repentance and of reconciliation with God, is that we're not only turning around and just turning from whatever direction we're facing to a different direction but actually that we know that when we're in sin the direction we are facing is exactly opposite of the direction that God is in and so the work of repentance is not just a a sort of arbitrary turning around from one thing to something else it's turning from the direction of sin and turning back to God which is where you were created to be and so that's sort of to keep in mind there. external contrition the act of repentance praying a prayer of repentance is only really repentance if we accompany it with the heart change that bears out in the way that we live from then on and that kind of flows into our life application as well which is to approach God in repentance so Sometimes we use the acronym ACTS for uh, kind of a guide for prayer, and it uh, kind of flows a lot of times from the Lord's Prayer when we look at it. So... um Maybe you guys have seen this before. Acts A for adoration, praising God, adoring God, confession uh, is the C in Acts, and it's admitting sin, asking God for forgiveness, thanksgiving, then thanking God, and supplication is petitioning God. And that is not only a good model for prayer, it's actually just a good model for how we approach God. Um, and so just kind of, it, it, that's a really great thing. It's a great mnemonic. It's deeply scriptural. But just for kicks, let's look at how the people in uh, the story that we just looked at in chapter 7 approach God at mitzvah. So it's a little bit different. It's in a different order anyway. So first they approach God with confession. They gathered at mitzvah and they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, They said, we have sinned against the Lord. So that's confession. That's confessing sin before God and demonstrating it through these ritual acts. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at But Then supplication. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So that's supplication. That's asking for God to give them something. So they begin with confession and they ask God for something. Then they have this adoration. that's done through Samuel because again, we're in the Old Testament. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. So a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And then later comes things. Thanksgiving. So Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And so that memorializing is really an act of thanksgiving before God. So you see that the things in the passage here come in a different order, but all the elements are still are still represented there in the way that Israel approaches God as they're coming to him in repentance. So the order isn't as important as the components. What seems to be central, though, is approaching God with an attitude of sorrow for sin, holy fear of his power, and the intention to change. And so my challenge, my life application, is pretty simple. It's just when you approach God in prayer, or you approach him in reading the word, or you approach him in worship, Do you approach him with a contrite spirit and a desire to repent? How can we change our approach to God to better honor and glorify him? One thing I would just suggest is when you stop to pray, begin with a confession of sin. Begin with an expression of repentance. When you open up your Bible to read it, begin by asking God's forgiveness for the ways that you've sinned and rebelled against him. When you come to worship, begin by confessing God, in fact, some of the older um, litur- you know older liturgies always begin with a confession of sin, right sometimes it begins with a call to worship and then a confession, but that 's always one of the first things that you do because to come into god 's presence as a rebel against him is not safe or wise, right? But to come into God's presence saying, God, forgive me, and then having assurance of his forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we then can step confidently into his presence and begin that moment that we have to worship him. So that's just a suggestion there. Um, any questions on anything before we move to our prayer time here? Chris, yes. Uh-huh.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, yes, sin is with us. Mm-hmm. How uh, How do you turn away from the sin? Hmm. And those
0: dogs? Yeah. Well, I think th- what we saw in the passage today is a really good suggestion for how we can do that. So I would look at at what we see as kind of the outline there. If that, if you want to. Do that act of turning away from sin and towards God. Kind of follow this model that was set by the, by the people of Israel and just try that. So confess sin to God. Ask for what you're going to ask for. That's what supplication means. Adoration, just worship God and praise him and then give thanks to God. And th- if, you, if you have those four components, then you're approaching God in the right way and that's a good way to turn from sin into God.